Would you stand with me in honor of God's word? We are in a series in 1 Peter called Precious Faith, and this is the next passage in 1 Peter. So here we go. 1 Peter 3, 1 through 7. Wives, in the same way, submit yourselves to your own husbands, so that if any of them do not believe the word, they may be won over without words by the behavior of their wives when they see the purity and reverence of your lives. Your beauty should not come from outward adornments such as elaborate hairstyles and the wearing of gold jewelry or fine clothes. Rather, it should be that of your inner self. The unfading beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is of great worth in God's sight. For this is the way the holy women of, of the past who put their hope in God used to adorn themselves. They submitted themselves to their own husbands like Sarah, who obeyed Abraham and called him her Lord. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. Husbands, in the same way, be considerate or um, understanding one translation, as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker partner or weaker vessel and as heirs with you of the gracious gift of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. Would you pray with me, please? Father, would you open our hearts to your word? Would you open our minds? Lord, we get very, very set on how we think about things. Would you wash our minds with your word and with your truth and with your love. And Lord, this, make this a safe place where I, I can be exposed here because when God exposes me, it's not to condemn me. It's to wash me and heal me. Lord, please have your way in this place, we ask. In Jesus' name, and everybody said, amen. You may be seated. So the message today is called Precious Faith, Godliness and marriage. Peter is writing to Gentile believers in a culture that's dominated with Rome's influence and the way households were set up, it were very, very man-centered. And uh, there were many gods in Rome, and the, the ultimate disrespect for, that a wife would show was if she had a different God than her husband had. And so Peter, rather God, is writing to these women that have gotten saved, that are in the grace of God, and they're, having, they're in this very difficult situation where their husbands are not believers, but they are. Their husbands are walking in darkness, and God's response to these women is not to leave the marriage but to become godlier so here's point one expectations for marriage here's the problem we have been promised something by hollywood called, if you find the right person, you are going to live happily ever after. This is, this is a promise that's made by Hallmark all the time. You, there's somebody out there, you find the right person, and all of a sudden, you've been unhappy, you've been unfulfilled, and you just got to find that, get rid of that insignificant uh, other that you've been with and find this right one, and then you will be happy because you are a half person and you are waiting to be completed by the right spouse. And you complete me. This is a message that's age old. And Hollywood has given this message in a thousand different ways. Here's the problem. You're not going to be able to get out of marriage what God has not put in it. And the whole idea that the key to happiness is in marriage and that somehow marriage is going to make me happy 
is we're, we're, we're at odds with why marriage even exists. It's very similar to the guy that was watching golf on TV. And he's been struggling with his golf game. He's got a horrible slice. And all he wants to do to impress his friends is be better at golf. And, and, and he's watching the commercials in between. Watching these pro golfers that are hitting it beautifully and wonderfully. In between golf, the commercial is advertising these new clubs. And all of a sudden, the light goes on. Oh my, this is the key to me being a better golfer. This will take my slice away. This will make me what I want to be. And so he goes out and he spends all of this money to buy these clubs. And of course, you know the end of the story. He is no better as a golfer. It's not in golf clubs to make you a better golfer. There are other problems. Um, However... He's now more unhappy. He was already unhappy and frustrated about his golf game, but now he spent all this money and he has to deal not just with his frustration about his golf game, but the disillusionment of feeling burned because I thought these golf clubs were going to give me something that they didn't give me. And this is the story of a lot of people with marriage. They look back longingly to their single days because they thought they were going to get this. They spent all this. They expended so much for this marriage. And I'm way unhappier than I was before I got married. What if God's goal for marriage isn't happiness, but godliness? What if God's point in marriage was that marriage would actually push me towards Jesus where I discover a deep well in Jesus, a well of joy that springs up to eternal life? What if marriage's point was to get me closer to the source, which is God himself, and become a godlier person where I'm not so dependent on happenings, which is where the word happiness comes from. Things have to happen around me good for me to be happy, where I'm not so dependent on what happens because I found joy. I found something deeper than happiness called joy that comes from the godliness of learning how to live in God's presence and in God's ways and in God's flow. What if that was God's point for marriage? So we had this couple in our church older couple. This is one church. I'm changing their names to protect the innocent. And uh, it was the most interesting couple because we're going to call the, uh, the, the man Greg. And Greg, I, I, I just think Greg was the most unhappy person in our church. He, I never heard him say anything good about the church, anything good about me, anything good about anything. He just, he just was kind of angry and wounded and hurt. And he just had this negative lens on him all the time. He, he was over one ministry in the church and it was always what was wrong. And if he did something wrong, he would never own it. It was always somebody else's fault and this, 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 this. And, and so it was just this he was just really hard to spend time with Greg. So he's married to this woman named Lois. And Lois is the happiest person in church. She's just so filled with joy all the time. And whatever ministry she's in prospers and she's always doing stuff for others and she's never thinking about herself. And I never heard her say anything bad about the church or about me. She could just say good. She could just see good and think good. And, and I'm just, and so here's what happens. They invite Allison over, Allison and I over for dinner at their house. And I'm like, oh yeah, we're going. Because <laughs> I, I, I can't, how does this work? How can these two be married to each other? I need to see the dynamics in action. So we go, we go over to their house. And guys, they are in private exactly what they are in public. He's there. He's grumpy. He's edgy. He's negative, And she's just so filled with joy. And, and the one thing he's got going for him, though, 
is he knows he's got a good thing going here. He, know, he absolutely adores his wife because he knows the fact that he's with her is amazing. And I thought, how can she be so joyful? And I thought it was in spite of him that she was still joyful. Even though she's married him, she's really joyful. And then it finally occurred to me, oh no, it's not in spite. It's because of him. I mean, she's only got a few choices when she finds out what she's married to. She can either leave him through divorce or murder. Or she can become godly. She can just be pressed into God. I want to submit to you that God's purpose for marriage is godliness. Here's my little quote for you. If self-love is blind, then marriage provides the glasses that help you see yourself more clearly. If self-love is blind, then marriage provides you with glasses that help you see yourself more clearly. What is revealed about yourself in marriage? Number one, insecurity. Here's how it works. We live in culture, and we learn how to fake it. We learn how to put the best foot forward, to try to, we want to appear better than we are, and so we keep putting the best foot forward, and, but here's the problem. It takes a lot of energy to keep the best foot forward. You can't keep it up 24-7. And when you get married, you've got somebody that's getting the whole picture. And all of your feelings of falling short and not being this enough, not being that enough, not being that, now you've got somebody close up that can see what you knew all along. And it makes you very insecure. Pettiness is revealed. We, uh, I remember so clearly when we got our first apartment. We've got all of our wedding gifts, and this is the first time that I've lived in an apartment. And um, we, fresh out of college, I'd been in the dorms for four years, and now we're in this apartment together. And we've got this uh, box that's filled with pictures that we're going to put on the, on the walls. And I say to my wife, in, a, in, in tremendous generosity, honey, this is your domain. You put the pictures wherever you want to. It doesn't matter to me at all. I, you know, I'm going to spend most of my time working. You're going to be here. You put them up wherever you want to. So she puts up the first picture, and I said this, not there. <laughs> no, anywhere you want, but not there. That doesn't work. It turns out I had an opinion about every picture, where every picture should go. And I thought I was this generous, graceful. No. Selfishness. Hmm. Going into marriage, I thought I was a really godly person. I thought I was on fire for God, and I was a worshiper, and prayed, and, you know, I just thought, I, you know, I'm not perfect, but I'm just, I'm just so godly. And then I realized, because my wife helped me with this, <laughs> that I was very selfish. And, uh, and then I would point out to her, her own things, and here we are, we get, we're, we're married, we're married for two years, and it, it's, it's really bad. What's happened is she has become angrier and angrier, and I have become more and more checked out. 
I'm, I'm check, why am I checking out? Because I can't please her. I don't know how to please her. I can't please her. And I want to win. And I can win over here. I can win with my hobbies. I can win with my, my job. I can win at church. So I'm, I'm doing lots of ministry. And I'm just spending lots and lots of time away from home. And the more time I'm spending away from home, the angrier she's getting. And the angrier she is, the more I want to be away from home because I'm not winning at home. In fact, I felt like I couldn't win at home. And so we get at the two-year point, and we just have it out one day. And, this, and the problem with this is, is this should not be, this should not be happening. We're both Christians. We're both from families, not Christian families, but healthy families, and that the no divorce in, in either of our parents. We're, we're both from same education, same income, that we've got so many things in the natural that should match, but we aren't making it. And so we have this all out, and I said, honey, here's what I think. I think our marriage needs to get saved. And I said, hey, I, I think it's like it's just like a sinner needs to get saved. They, you, you start by re- recognizing you can't save yourself and then you thank God that there is a Savior and then you give your life to that Savior. And I said, I just think we need to both come just to the absolute end of ourselves. We cannot make this marriage work. And we need, Jesus, we need you to save this marriage. And that was 34 years ago. And Jesus has saved this marriage. Praise God. You know, my spouse, he brings out the worst in me. This is what I get in counseling. This is when either people are separated or they want to get divorced or they're trying to make it worse. And, 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 and the problem with this current spouse is they bring out the worst in me. So here's the question I've got for you to think about. What if it's not your spouse that's bringing out the worst in you? What if it's actually marriage? What if marriage is bringing out the worst in you. What if God designed marriage to bring out the worst in you so that you could see it, he could forgive it, and he could heal it so that you could actually become a better human being? Godliness. So point two is this, why marriage? <laughs> if this is the purpose of marriage, why would anyone want to get married? And it's funny because the disciples, Jesus is telling them what marriage is like in Matthew 19. You know what the response was? Well, then who would ever get married? <laughs> they actually ask him that question. Proverbs 18.22. He who finds a wife finds what is good and receives favor from the Lord. One translation. He who finds a wife finds a good thing and receives favor. Marriage is one of God's blessings. It's a little hard in English to get at what this verse is because the, uh, the, the, the Septuagint, which is the Old Testament Greek translation, points out what this verse is about. There are two Greek words for find. One is to find something that you're looking for. Something is lost and you're looking for it. And so you have this picture of seeking out something and finding it. And I finally found it. And of course, I would rejoice because that which I was looking for, I have now found. That is not the find that is used here. There's a second Greek word that we translate find that is, I'm walking down the the road and all of a sudden, a $20 bill blows to my feet and I find it 
as like a surprise. Not looking for it, and it's just brought to me, and oh, a surprise. God has good things for people. One of them can be marriage. But what you don't want to do is seek for it in desperation because this is what's going to make me happy. And I've got to find that spouse. So I'm going to go to all of these singles meetings. And I'm going to get on the internet. And I'm going to get on dating sites. And, and I'm going to, I've got to find this because I've got to, I know that's the key to my happiness. And I've got to find that person. And, and I've got to, uh, there's all this pressure on this process because I need to find it. Nope, that's not what you need to do. There, there's nothing wrong to be being part of a singles group or to do internet dating, but don't have any of that in your heart. If God's got marriage for you, it will come like a surprise. Seek God. Seek to please God. And God will provide things that you weren't looking for as his blessing and his surprise. Some people, God isn't calling to get married. Some people, that's not, that's, God's got some, a different plan for you. But I want you to know this. If it's in your heart to be married and you really want to be married, then it's because God probably does have somebody there for you. But the idea that you need to find them and you need to go to the highways and the byways and find this person, it's too much pressure. It's too much pressure on you. It's too much pressure on him or her. Don't, don't do that. Get happy in God. Walk with God. And he will surprise you as a blessing. If you are married, don't let the ideal you can dream of rob you of the really good thing you have. When we live, and, and Hollywood's very good at this, of giving us this ideal of what it should look like, and of course, every man is going to fall short of these lines that have been given to Tom Hanks that writers have said this would be the most romantic thing you could ever say. And every man's going to fall short of that. So, but if you're filled with this, this ideal, um, you can be robbed of something really good that you actually have. And what happens is then you become ungrateful for what you have. And ungratefulness is a recipe for unhappiness. Don't let the ideal you can dream of rob you of the really good thing you have. Let me give you four reasons why I am so grateful for my marriage. Number one, companionship. It's not good for man to be alone. That's the first reason that God gave for marriage. That God said, I'm going to give you something, someone with flesh and blood on that will travel with, I'm always with you, but I want you to have somebody in the physical that will walk with you. I am so grateful for companionship. Alice has learned. Um, I like to tell my day to somebody. I get home from work and Alice will ask me every day, so tell me what you did today. And you know what I do? I tell her, like, I woke up and then I had a quiet time. I mean, I literally go through the day and, and she's like, can I have a little more detail? And maybe I'll give her a little more, but I just, and then I'll get done telling her the day and she's like, wow, you got a lot done today. I just like telling my day to somebody. Makes it feel more valuable. And, but I've learned how to talk about her day. Because we've learned through personalities. I'm a bulldog, she's a butterfly. She does not want to, I, she does not want me to ask her what she did today. She wants to ask me how she felt about the day. And so I'll ask her how she felt about the day and 
She'll share whatever she wants to share or doesn't want to share. There's no pressure there. Companionship. I'm so grateful for it. I'm so grateful that we, when we have to make a decision, there's somebody that I can talk to. There's somebody that I can pray with. When, we, when we're trying to find out God's will on whether we should move or whether we should buy this house or whether we, how we should, what we should do with the child or, or, the, or which college or whatever, we, there's somebody praying with me that really cares because she's totally invested. Whatever decision's made is going to affect her too. And so it's, it's just wonderful to have that companionship. I mean, literally every single thing that we own in our house there's a story of how we got it. It's part of us being together. Companionship. Second, encouragement. This is Ecclesiastes 4, 9, and 10. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. I want you to notice the word labor in here. Relationships are work. Relationships mean that you're going to have to work. You're going to have to forgive. You're going to have to get back up. You're going to have to exercise some trust and some acceptance. And you're going to have to work at it. The idea that if you're in love, it won't be work. It'll just be automatic. And somehow, if, if you're working at it, that that's somehow unholy. That is absolutely not true. It's, marriage is work. But there's a return for it. And that is when one falls down, Someone is there to pick you up. In 2007 through 2009, I went through a very, very dark stage in my ministry, in my life. I felt like there were things happening in our family that I couldn't control. There were certainly things happening in the ministry. I had an unsold house that we couldn't sell. And I just started, Mr. Confidence started to go into self-doubt. Just questioning a lot of things. And Alice was there. When I didn't believe in myself, she believed in me. She believed in my ministry. She stayed with me. And God so arranges it that when one is down, the other one is up and can help pick them back up. And this doesn't have to be marriage. This can be friendship. This can be uh, family. It is, this is God's design, which is why we need to invest in relationships. Not just your dream, not just your project. It is not inefficient to spend time just building relationships. Somebody said this, if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. Because we need one another. We need somebody to encourage us, to pick us up. God designed it that way. Third one is beauty. I read this article in the Wall Street Journal and made me laugh out loud because it was called Bears with Furniture. It was about single men's apartments. These, these are bears that happen to have furniture around them because they really don't notice anything and they don't make anything beautiful. And this, is, this was absolutely me. It's also my little brother, Jimmy, it best demonstrated by he was living in this apartment with roommates and they didn't have any lights in the apartment. They had the, the kitchen light and they had the dining room light that could, had a switch, but there were no lights in the living room other than a TV. And we're like, dude, you gotta have lights. And so we got him a lamp for Christmas. And uh, we helped him pack it up in his trunk that summer, he was moving, and we opened the trunk up, and that lamp was still there. He never used it. He never, he never bothered to plug it in. Folks, bears with furniture. I, I didn't even understand. I, I, I was in the dorms, Celery B at Madison, for four years, and people would talk about getting an apartment and going out to an apartment. I'm like, why? How could life be any better than this? I've got my little dorm room, my little efficient bed, and I, somebody else is making meals, and I just go down and get them. Honestly, guys, if it wasn't for Alice, I would still be living in some sort of a dorm room right now. <laughs> but here's the funny thing. No one enjoys the beauty she makes more than me. 
when she makes something beautiful, I'm just like, this is so nice. <laughs> I never would have thought of this. This is nice. This is beautiful. My life is so much more beautiful because I'm married. And then last, sex. God put this private celebration in marriage as a reward for how difficult the commitment of marriage was. So he, he made sex. Listen to this. This is Proverbs 5, 18 and 19. Rejoice in the wife of your youth as a loving hind and a graceful doe. Let her breasts satisfy you at all times. Be exhilarated always with her love. Pastor Tom, that's awkward that you'd even read that in church. Well, that's why I went right out of the Bible. Because <laughs> everybody allows you to read the Bible in church. What, why? Why did God make sex? Why did he make us sexual beings? Why, in his foreknowledge, he knows the devastation that our sexuality is going to bring. He knows about pornography. He knows about sex addiction. He knows about venereal disease. He knows about all of the stress that's going to come because of our sexuality. And yet, knowing all of that, he's like, nope, we're going to go with it anyway. Why? Because God did not want marriage to just be a duty that we had to fulfill. He wanted there to be a secret delight in marriage. Did you notice in this passage, it says to rejoice in the wife of your youth. Did you notice what that says? It doesn't say rejoice in your young wife. Rejoice in the wife that you traded in for because the other one was getting old, so you got a new copy, uh, young, a young version. No, no. Rejoice in the wife that you made a commitment to in your youth. And now you're older, but you have been committed all of these years. You have stayed with one another all of these years. Now, rejoice, delight. I'm giving you permission to enjoy each other. And have this secret delight that no one else gets to share in. Why was that so important to God? Because marriage is what he uses as the picture of our relationship with him. And he did not want our Christianity to just be duty. He did want it to be based on a commitment that we make to him where we are all in, whether we're feeling it today, whether we sense the spirit today or not, that our relationship with him is much deeper than that. We're going to obey him and we're going to follow him. But he didn't want it to just be our duty. We were created to enjoy God. It's, there's fullness of joy in his presence. And he wanted there to be touches where we would encounter him. He wanted there to be mountaintops where we experience his presence and remembered how wonderful he is, where we have tasted the goodness of God for ourselves. And it strengthens our commitment. It celebrates again our commitment. That's why we always start with worship. We're remembering his presence we're remembering the delight of who he is. All right. Becoming godly, point three, last point. First, aligning or realign, realigning yourself with God's purpose. Here's John 4.10. And then I'm going to go right to 13 and 14. If you knew the gift of God and who it is that asks you for a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water that I give them will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. So here's the context. Jesus comes up to this woman whose life is a mess. 
And it is a mess because of her sexuality. She has had five marriages and she's currently living with a guy that is not her husband. It is a mess. And here's, here's what Jesus says to her. If you knew who it was that's talking to you and what God's gift is to the human race, you would ask me. And, and I would give you this water that alone can satisfy and I've got more than just water. You were created to have a well of this water in you that springs up to eternal life. You were created for eternity and not just time. You, I am the reason you were created. Come to me, drink of me, and living waters will start flowing from your innermost being. Turns out we weren't created for marriage. We were created for salvation. And when Jesus addresses this woman, he's saying, align with my purpose. Isn't it amazing that there's no marriage advice given? What is this lady supposed to do? Is she supposed to break up with the guy she's living with? Is she supposed to marry the guy she's living with? Or is she supposed to get rid of him and go back to the fifth husband? Or is she actually supposed to go back to the first husband? Which one? What would please God the most? Jesus doesn't even mention it. Jesus says, listen, you come and you drink at this well and you get this this aligned right. I'll help you make all those other decisions. I'll show you what the right thing to do is. You don't have to worry about that now. You get realigned with my purpose. So I do a lot of pre-marriage counseling. People call and they want to get married and they're wondering if I would do the wedding and and here's what I, here's what I say. A lot of the, a lot of folks I don't know. I, they, 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 they might come here or maybe the person they're going to marry comes here. Um, and how long? And, and I just don't know a lot of people. And so I'll say, I'll meet with you. I never promise that I will marry them. I'm, I'll say, I'll meet with them. And here's how we usually start. I will say, Something like this. This is going to seem like I'm not talking about marriage. But trust me, this is, this is very key to your marriage working. And I will show them the bridge illustration and show them how to get saved. Because if you're not saved... If you haven't got that well in you to spring up to eternal life, this marriage, it's going to just be band-aids. It's going to be a series of band-aids, and you're going to survive in this thing, but you're going to miss the big picture. The key to your joy, the key to your life is Jesus. Augustine said said it this way, we were created for you, and our hearts are restless until they rest in you. I mean, isn't there a show called, there used to be maybe, called Restless Housewives? Here's what the answer is. Jesus. Jesus. Get aligned right. Pastor Tom, I'm such a mess. I, I've, I've made a mess. I've been a mess. I've been divorced. I've been, we're, I'm now remarried. I'm now living with somebody. Uh, Pastor Tom, you, you couldn't believe the mess. I think that's why Jesus chose this lady. Because she was a bigger mess than any of you. She's been married five times. She's living with somebody that's not her husband. This is a mess. And Jesus says, don't worry about the mess. Come as you are. Come as you are. You are at the right place. Because I love you, and I died for you, and I have a gift for you that changes everything. But it changes it from within. It doesn't just give you a band-aid to make things a little better until the next counseling meeting. It changes everything. And so it doesn't matter today. If you're here, and I'm talking about marriage, but you're divorced or you're widowed, or you're 
your spouse is in prison and you're away from them, or they're on a military assignment and you're here and I can't, how do I make this thing work? Or you're single, you're not married yet, but you want to be, listen, come and drink. Come and drink. This is what you are made for. That's where the joy is. And God freely gives it to us in Christ. So be, being, being godly is aligning yourself with God and, and, it, it, and that's salvation. But if a lot of times it's realigning ourselves with God. That we are saved, but we just got off in a thousand bad places. It's okay. Come as you are. Let's realign. Let's realign today. Let's tell Jesus we're coming back. Secondly, to live godly, don't give in to fear. Here's what it says. 1 Peter 3, 6. You are her daughters if you do what is right and do not give way to fear. It is very easy for wives and mothers to become fearful when their husband is walking in darkness. I'm losing my family. I'm losing, we're going the wrong way. We're doing the wrong thing. And it's very easy. Fear has a very loud voice. And here's what happens when wives operate in that fear. They start using, start using words to manipulate their husband or speak to their husband as if he's one of their children because there's this motherly instinct in women that mother, and it's my job to raise up my kids and get them wearing the right thing and get them acting the right thing. And when you do that to your husband and you don't try to, it's not evil, you're just trying to mother your husband, it makes him feel very disrespected. But he doesn't have words to say that to you. So what he'll do is just shut down. Yes, dear. Yes, dear. And then people will make jokes about it. Even she will make jokes about it. That I've got these four kids, but I really have five kids because my husband's actually one of them too. And I got to keep him in order too. He didn't, he's already got a mother. You're not his mother. You're his wife. He needs you to come alongside of him. And not give in to fear. That means fear is going to be there. You're going to fear that he's doing the wrong thing. Fear is everywhere. Don't give in to it. Rebuke fear in Jesus' name and trust God with your husband. Push into God. That's what it means when it says a gentle, quiet spirit is beautiful to God. It doesn't mean a gentle, quiet personality. God loves your personality. God loves extroverts as much as he loves introverts. A gentle, quiet spirit is a spirit that's trusting God. Do not give in to fear. Sarah is our example. Abraham, the great man of God, the great man of faith that steps out and obeys God even though uh, he doesn't know where he's going. He gets to the promised land and there's all of a sudden there's a famine. And as soon as there's a famine, does, does Abraham seek God? No. He goes to Egypt. That's exactly what the world does. When there's a problem, you go down to, to Egypt because that was the big city in that day. He didn't ask God's will or God's... So he goes down to Egypt. He's already in a bad place. He's already operating in fear. And when you're already going dark, it gets darker. And they get to the edge of the city. And he turns to his wife, Sarah, and says, You are so pretty. You are so beautiful. Uh, I'm afraid for my life if, if, if you say that you're my wife. So would you mind saying that you're, you're my sister? And it's kind of half true because they had the same father but different mother. And would you mind, would you mind for my sake just saying that you're my sister? Are you kidding me? This is the man of God? This is the man of faith hiding behind the skirts of Sarah? But Sarah doesn't give in to fear. We don't know the whole conversation, but she goes along with it. So sure enough, Pharaoh sees her beauty. Pharaoh sees her beauty, brings her into the, to the court. But God intervenes. God won't let him sleep with her. And God starts bringing judgment on all of Pharaoh's house and lets Pharaoh know that it's of God. And he turns to Abraham and says, what have you done? How could you do this to me? 
Same thing happens at another city. And this time it's King Abimelech. And God comes to him in a dream and says, that woman that you're planning on marrying is not his sister, it's his wife. And there's going to be judgment on your whole house unless you make this thing right. He gets up in the morning, he goes to Abraham and says, how could you possibly do this to me? And then he gives Sarah like a thousand pieces of silver to vindicate her. What's the message? God says, ladies, If you will let go and trust me, I am able to intervene. You can win him without a word. You can win him without empowering fear. I will intervene for you. I can hinder his prayers. I can make his life so miserable that he has to turn to me. Women, you you feel like you're not in the power position. You are in the power position if you will... Trust me. Don't give in to fear. You're not a victim unless you give in to fear. So I want to talk to you a little about David. David was the man after God's heart. And Saul started abusing him. Saul was the king, he was the musician, a demon got on Saul, and whenever he got enraged, he would pick up a spear and throw it at David. David was being promoted because of his military victories, and David, they they had songs about David, and Saul was very insecure and very jealous, and he could go very dark, and he was trying to kill David, and so David separated from Saul physically. If you are being physically abused, then you need to get out of the position you are in. You need to separate from that. You To stay in it and live in fear all the time is only empowering fear, and it's enabling a horrible situation. You need to get out. You need to separate. If you are being emotionally abused and manipulated, then you need to get out of that place, you don't have to move out of the house, but you need to get out of the room. Honey, when you're talking like that, I'm just going to leave. When you're using guilt and manipulation, I'm just going to leave. I'm not going to enable this process. We will talk when it's two adults talking to one another, but we're not going to talk with you trying to bully me one way or the other. And you create separation. Don't give in to fear. Of course, the problem with David was Jonathan, who's his best friend, doesn't believe him. He says, your dad's trying to kill me. And Jonathan says, no, he's not. My dad's a great guy. I know my dad. He would never try to kill you. He loves you. And David says, gives it, he gives him this little experiment. And they go to the house. David is not there. And, and Saul says, why isn't David at the meal? And Jonathan says, I gave him permission to go back to Bethlehem. He's doing a sacrifice. And Saul gets filled with anger, takes a spear and throws it at Jonathan, his own son. And he says, you son of a bop, 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 bop. He says, don't you know that as long as the son of Jesse, which is David, is alive, you will not be king. And Jonathan's like, oh my, there is this other side to my dad that I did not know about. And he says, he goes to David and says, you you need to stay separate. Separation is very different than divorce. Separation says, I love you, I'm committed to you, I've made a vow to you, I've made a vow to God, and I'm staying with you, but I cannot live with you and enable this horrible thing. And a lot of times, it just, it really takes talking about it. Because sometimes people have been brought up in abusive homes and they don't even know they're abusing or manipulating or doing something. I mean, physically, it's fairly clear. But when it's emotional abuse, they don't realize they're doing it. That's just how families work. That's how their family work. And so somebody actually has to say, this is really unhealthy. Well, what do you want me to do? Let's go get counseling. Let's go talk to somebody that's outside, somebody that's healthy, that can say, this is wrong. And it doesn't have to be a professional paid counselor. It can be, it can be somebody from your home group. It's just somebody that's healthy that can speak into your situation and help you become healthy. Do not live in fear. So here's what David writes in the midst of this thing. He has fled from Saul. He is 
uh, gone to Philistine land in Psalm 34. It gives at the beginning of Psalm 34 in the preface, it says the conditions that David wrote this in. He's right in the middle of this. Here's what he wrote. Listen to this because this is for all of us. Psalm 34, 4 through 6. I sought the Lord. That's godliness. And he answered me. He delivered me from all my fears. Those who look to him are radiant. Their faces are never covered with shame. This poor man called and the Lord heard him and saved him out of all his troubles. And then finally, seek. How do you live godly? Seek to understand. Husbands, Live your wives with your wives in an understanding way, lest your prayers be hindered. So this guy lives in Southern California, and, and uh, he's up in his attic, and he finds a lamp, and he's like, no, this can't be, this just can't be. And he starts polishing the lamp, and sure enough, a genie pops out. And the genie says, well, you know, you know the rules. Uh, you get one wish, whatever you want. And he's like, well, he said, I've always wanted to see Hawaii, but I'm afraid to ever get in an airplane. Would you? Here's my wish. I want you to build a highway for me that goes from Los Angeles to Hawaii. The genie thinks about this, thinks about the engineering, thinks about the cement. He's like, he's like can I be honest with you? That's a really difficult request. Is there something else we could do for you? And he says, okay, how about if you... Give me understanding of a woman's heart. And the genie says, do you want two lanes or four lanes in that highway? (laughs) Now, men love that joke, and here's why. Men like to tell themselves that they can't understand their wife. Don't know what's going on in there and can't understand it and don't have to because no one understands her. That's a lie. That's a lie. God would not say, husbands, under, live with your wives in an understanding way if you couldn't understand them. What, when God does give a command like that, it means it's going to take some work. It means you're going to have to listen. You're going to have to find out how she feels. So what happened with me is I had to redefine what the win is. I always like to win. But to win with my wife, I had to redefine what win is. The win with my wife is not solving her problems. She does not want me to solve her problems. She wants to tell me about her problems, and she wants me to empathize with her problems, and she wants me to pray for her. Husbands, you don't have to save your wives. You don't have to save all of her problems. Jesus already has that job. It's a win when you come alongside with no judgment and you listen and let her talk and don't try to solve it. The Bible says that Jesus, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, washing her with the water of his words. Men, your words have a profound effect on your wife. And it's not just what you say, it's how you say it. Jesus actually makes his bride beautiful by what he speaks to her and how he speaks to her. He uses his gentle communication and intimacy to wash us, to clean us up, to get us so in love with him that we become without spot or wrinkle as we follow him. And God wants husbands to do the same. I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. We're about to take communion. Last thing I want to say is this. Have you ever heard this phrase, you're not listening to me? Have you ever heard their eyes get big and they just want to take you by the throat? You're not listening to me. Here's what I've learned about this. 
Oftentimes when people say, you're not listening to me, what they're, what they're really saying is this, you're not agreeing with me. Because I'm so sure that I'm right. I'm so sure that the way I see it is the right way. That if you heard me, you would agree with me. Anybody that could hear what I'm saying would agree with me. Well, newsflash. Just because someone listens to you and understands you does not mean they're going to agree with you. And that's okay. It doesn't make a person a hater because they don't agree with you. Do you know this whole nation was based on dissent? Our whole constitution was a place where we could agree to disagree. And right now in this nation, we don't, no one's listening anymore. Because we've redefined listening to you have to agree with me or you don't listen to me and you don't love me and you don't value me because this is how it has to be. Guys, we need to relax, man. We need to allow people to share and we need to not force people to agree with our opinion or the way we are seeing things right now because otherwise we're going to divide And the Bible says that a house divided will not stand. All right, so could we take our communion elements and uh, go ahead and get these out? These are are childproof, so I could not get it open last time. I had to have somebody on the worship team open it for me. Um, You get the bread out first, and then... And then you get this cup open. It's really easy, just like this. Boom. Got it. So Jesus said this. I'm sorry, Paul said this. Before you take communion, examine your heart. And get your heart right with God so that you don't receive communion in an unworthy way. Jesus came to cleanse confessed sin. He didn't come to cover over it. And so to make communion genuine, we need to take a moment to examine, is is everything right between me and God, especially after a message like this? So could we just, would you mind praying with me as we just examine our hearts here? Lord, thank you that you're so filled with love for us. Lord, this was a brutal message, and we've seen in ourselves insecurity and selfishness and pettiness and and then the host of mistakes that we've made and relationships that have been broken and sexual stuff that was wrong and and just bad and lord you brought all of that into the light not to condemn us with it not to say how could you but i love you i know about it and i died on a cross to wash that from you I want to give you a new beginning. I want to give you a fresh drink of myself. You know, two verses after this passage in Psalm 34, David says, taste and see that the Lord is good. Lord, would you give each one a taste of your goodness here this morning? We're coming to you, Jesus. We're realigning with you. That's what communion is. It's a time to realign with you. We're realigning our lives with you, Jesus. Thank you for dying for us. Thank you for taking the penalty for our sin. Thank you for being the answer for human beings. On the night he was betrayed, Jesus took bread and he said, this is my body given for you. Take and eat. Can we eat together? When the supper was ended, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood. The blood of the new covenant, the new agreement between God and man. And here's how it works. I'm going to pour this blood out for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. Let's drink together. And then would you stand with me? We're going to do one worship song together.
Lord, in some ways, all of us have been abused by darkness. And in some ways, all of us have been used by darkness to bring abuse in some way. Lord, we're bringing it all to the cross right now and saying, Jesus, would you wash us? Would you take away fear? Would you take away shame? Lord, would you bring us out of hiding? And Jesus, here's what he's saying. Doesn't matter how dark it's been. Doesn't matter how horrible you've been or how long you've been living under fear. Jesus is saying, just, just come as you are. Come just as you are. You don't have to clean up for me. You don't have to impress me. Just come as you are. And then he's saying, take my hand. And now all you need to do is walk with me because I'm going to lead you out of darkness. And I'm going to make you better. I'm going to bring you to a better place. And the world's going to see redemption through you. So Lord, I pray that for every single one of us, that we would individually and corporately take your hand this morning. That we would drink. We would bring all of our thirst, all of our unmet needs, all of our angst. We would bring it to you and drink of you. And that rivers would well up and start flowing in and through us. And God, as, we, as we're sent out to this world that's in chaos and darkness and fear and hate and all kinds of things, Lord, that you would make us a blessing. Make us your gentle, tender, firm love in this world that is just confused right now. Would you do that for us? Would you do that for this world? We love you today, Lord. Commit this to you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, team. So you know the drill. We're, we want to keep this safe, so try not to loiter and find an exit. And if you need prayer, get prayer outside from somebody. If you want to chat more, try to chat outside. God bless you, and thanks for being here today.